Good evening again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans. We're going to continue our Romans series now. Uh, we left off in November in Romans 5, picking back up now in Romans 5, and we're making this shift now to what we're calling Romans Part 2, the middle section of the book. And I hope you see the cool symbolism of the art here. We, we had a distant view of the Colosseum in Rome before, and now we have an internal view. And what we see happening in the book of Romans is we're moving from this kind of view from a distance of theology, big universal ideas, to how that theology impacts our heart and our lives from the inside out. So that's kind of the section of Romans that we're moving into now. We'll be in verses 6 through 11, Romans 5, 6 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one nearby. We've got some black Bibles around, and you can open to page 942, if you want to follow along there, page 942 in the black Bibles. Romans 5, 6 through 11, we're calling it grace for the week, grace for the week. When we started chapter 5 and just did the first few verses uh, several weeks ago now, a couple months back now, uh, we introduced the idea of adoption, that there's this big theme of adoption that uh, is kind of hinted at in chapter 5, 6, and 7, and then in 8, it's hit really hard. Paul talks about it very explicitly in chapter 8. Uh, last night, I had the privilege of going to see Rogue One with my daughter. Have y'all seen this movie? Anybody seen it? A few of you? Okay, cool. Great movie. Uh, spaceships and stuff. A fun movie. A lot, of, a lot of good things happening there. And basically, the story follows an orphan, follows this girl who loses her family. And so she's trying to figure out uh, if she is loved, if she is cared for. Does she have family? Does she belong? And she's trying to figure out if she has a purpose. And as I was kind of discovering this theme in the movie, just watching it last night, it occurred to me that that other new Star Wars movie had kind of the same theme, right? The girl in that movie, same situation, right? Trying to figure out who she is and where she comes from. Does she matter? Is she loved? Does she have a purpose? And I was like, oh, wait. There was kind of that same theme in the 70s version of Star Wars that I saw as a little kid, right? Luke Skywalker. And then I started realizing, hey, that was also in the 90s versions of the movies that my kids enjoyed uh, when I was older. And then I started thinking, you know what? That's, that's in Batman, too. And that's in Superman, right? And that's in the Harry Potter movies. And it's like you start realizing all these great stories hit on that theme, uh, echo, bounce off of that theme. It's just there again and again. And so my thesis is that even if you're not literally an orphan, right? Even if you could say, here are my parents, they were with me my entire growing up, the Bible says that we're all spiritual orphans. So we may not have known orphanhood to, to the extreme, right? We may not have been literal orphans in the way the, the word is normally used, but we're all spiritual orphans. We all, because of our sin, are without family, we're, are without connection. And God in the gospel says he's coming after us to rescue us, and put us back into his family to restore that sense of love and belonging, but also to restore that need we have for purpose, that, that we have a, a purpose in this life, that God's made us for something outside of ourselves. And so that's what we're going to see here in this text, God's uh, move towards us, that even when we couldn't save ourselves, God stepped in to save us. So starting in verse 6, he says it this way, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation. We were torn apart, right? We were at enmity, we were at odds with God, and now we're reconciled, we're, we're together, we're adopted back into his family. Let me pray for us and ask God to help us to receive his word. God, we pray that you would help us to hear it, um, God, that you would help us to understand it, and that you would transform our lives because of what you are doing in the world and, and in us. And we pray that because you've shown grace to us in our weakness, that we would show grace to others in their weakness. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I structured the sermon really as a series of challenges. Um, so kind of my main points are a challenge to us, that we would live like God lived towards us, right? So that we would show grace to others the way God showed grace to us. And the first challenge I have is that we should initiate for the week. Why? Because God initiated for us. And so the text is saying, this is what God did for you. And so now I'm saying, we should do this for others, right? Because God initiated towards us when we were weak, when we were ungodly. We didn't, we didn't move towards him to save ourselves. He moved towards us. That's what initiation is, is taking the first step. God took the first step towards us. We should be the kinds of people that in grace take the first step towards other people. So verse six uh, starts off with the, the term weakness. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So we were weak. The idea is that we were not able to save ourselves. In Ephesians, it goes so far as to say we weren't just weak, but we were dead in our sins. We often think of the image of salvation being like we were thrown a life jacket when we were struggling along in our hard life, and God you know, reaches out a rope or a life preserver. But Ephesians says, no, we were dead on the bottom of the ocean floor. Here it's phrased in our text as we were weak, and we were ungodly, and he goes even farther in verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we want to just clean up first the idea that we initiate with God, right? That's not biblical. We don't, we don't get God to love us. God moves towards us in love, and we either receive or reject that love. So many of us struggle with this thought of, if I can just clean up enough spiritually, then maybe God will bless me. If I can just get enough stuff together, hey, it's a new year, right? So if you can just be good enough, if you can be more involved in the church, and you know, I always I, I joke about this, if you, know, if you could just serve in the nursery more, God would love you, right? Or if you could just give more money to the church, God would love you more. And I, I think, sadly, a lot of preachers would, would preach that and ride that hard. And I would like to, but the problem is the Bible doesn't allow me to say that. The Bible says that, no, God moved to you in your weakness and your ungodliness and in your sin, and said, I love you first, and receive that love. And so that, that's hard for us, because we want to see ourselves as the good guys, right? We want to see ourselves as the good guys. The two ways we have a hard time with that, I think there's kind of classically these two categories, the rebellious and the religious version of rejecting the gospel, and the rebellious version is, I don't want God, some God telling me that I'm a sinner or that there are any rules, right? So we would reject the idea that we're sinners that need a savior, because we reject the idea of sin at all. 
That, that's one way of rejecting the gospel. Another way of rejecting the gospel, though, that probably we need to be more careful about because we live in the heart of the Bible Belt is we need to be more careful about the religious rejection of the gospel, which is, I'm pretty good. God didn't move towards me and die for me while I was still a sinner. God died for me because I'm one of the good guys, right? We can kind of twist it and say, I'm, I'm one of the good people, and I've tried real hard, and that's why Jesus died for me, because I'm kind of good, or I met him halfway, instead of recognizing, no, he died for you because he loves you by grace, not because of anything you've done. So while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We should then, again, the challenge, we should initiate for others the way God initiates for us. I was thinking a real concrete way of thinking about this is uh, life-saving techniques. You see someone struggling. Here's, here's people practicing CPR. You see someone in pain, hurting, you should initiate to help them, right? I mean, that's just common sense, basic. Uh, try to serve them. Try to love them, right? Um, I remember a few years ago, I was in a restaurant and a guy started choking and there was like three or four of us sitting nearby, kind of realizing at the same time what was happening. And we all kind of are getting up from our chair, you know, you're kind of like trying to process, okay, is this guy really choking or is he just coughing? You know, what's happening? We're kind of getting up and then the manager just jumps in. I guess he had special manager choking training, you know, and he just jumped in and did the Heimlich and the guy was clear and everything was okay. And it was amazing because the guy actually came to the church. Then a few years after that, I think this was like six years ago, and then a couple years later, the guy shows up at the church, and I'm seeing this guy. I'm like, you look really familiar. And he's like, yeah, I know. I was choking one day at a restaurant, and you were there. (laughs) I was like, whoa. He said, yes, every single person in that room I will remember forever because I I thought I was about to die, you know? I was like, wow, okay, that's amazing. So anyway, how did I get off on that? I don't know where I was going with that. Um... Here's the idea, initiating for the week, initiating for the week, right? And so here's, here's the thought I had. When I saw that guy choking, there was something in me that just naturally moves towards him. He's another human being. He's one of my people, a fellow citizen of our city, right? There's a sameness there. And, and what I want us to see is there's not nearly that same amount of sameness between us and God. Because uh, for one thing, there's the creature-creator separation, right? He, he's bigger than us, right? There's also the holiness versus sinner separation. He's absolutely holy, and we're sinners. We, we, do our own, we don't love people well. We don't do what's right, but he always does. So there's this huge gap of separation that he's leaping over as he initiates love towards us. And I just want you to appreciate how, how big and how distant that is, that God didn't scoop us up because we were so cuddly and cute. When we think about the idea of, of like adoption at a human level, we can think, oh, I want to adopt this, this little cute little thing because they're cute, right? There's some joy there. But for us, we were, we were rebels. We were enemies of God. That's the language that he picks up later on in, in the, the next verses. He had to reconcile us to himself. And so it's just important, I think, for us to understand that because I think that makes the grace more stark, And so, historically, Christians have been people who then initiate kindness and grace and care towards people, even if they can't repay you, or even if they don't have some intrinsic value that you can immediately see. One of the areas that this has really been clear over the centuries is the sick and uh, babies, right? Historically, Christians are the ones that founded what we know today as the institutions of orphanages 
and hospitals. Those didn't really exist before Christianity showed up uh, on the world history scene. In the first century, Roman people, if they had a child that was ugly or deformed or sick, or maybe they just had too many children, they would just leave that baby out. It was called exposure just to fend for itself in the elements, right? To be eaten by wild dogs or just to, to die from exposure. And Christians, historically, were the ones who in great numbers said, we care, we're going to care for this baby that can't care for itself. Or the sick, we're going to care for these sick people that can't care for themselves. So that's always been a priority of Christians because, because we believe that's how God dealt with us. Because we see that that's how the God of the universe dealt with us. We were sick, we were enemies, we were rebels, we were sinners, but he showed love for us. He initiated grace towards us. So because that's historically been a value of Christians, I would argue we don't want to do it just to keep with history, but we want to keep with history because Christians in the past saw this theology, saw that God loved us even though we didn't deserve it. So we want to love others. Indiscriminate grace. We want to show grace to others. One of the big hot-button issues is abortion, right? Christians would say that an embryo or a fetus or a child in the womb is made in the image of God, and so it has intrinsic value. But even if that child can't do anything for us, right, that's how the world would value things, that baby can't, that can't support itself. It's not productive, right? What's it going to do for us? We would still say we want to love and protect and care for that child. So one of the ministries we've worked with a lot over the years is called Hope Pregnancy Center, I'd really encourage you to consider getting more involved with Hope. We as an organization give money to Hope and then occasionally encourage you to go and be a part of what they're doing. They have a training coming up that we're going to announce at the end of the service tonight. I encourage you to consider getting involved with them. What they do is they come alongside people that have an unwanted pregnancy and say, um, how can we help you, right? How can we help you either keep the child, we'll bring resources to bear to help you make this work, or how can we help you put this child up? for adoption so that someone else can care for this child. But they come along people and help, come alongside people, help them choose life. So we would, we would love to be more about that and encourage you and challenge you to consider what are ways as a Christian you could initiate towards the smallest, right? I don't know if you heard the, or saw the movie Horton, Here's a Who. A person is a person no matter how small, right? That's a great line from that Dr. Seuss story. A person is a person no matter how small, and we want to care for those even, even that we see no a big obvious value in, right? Even if they can't do a lot for us, we want to care for them because that's how God treated us. And then adoption and foster care is another area where we carry this out as well, just literally adopting children or, or caring for foster children. I want to encourage you to consider that. Again, as a church, corporately, we do this a lot by um, having foster care agencies and adoption agencies do all their trainings here. Uh, we give the building free to foster care agencies and adoption agencies if they want to do trainings here. We also have a Sunday school class that's ongoing at 1030. Encourage people to be a part of that to learn more because that might be overwhelming to you. You might be thinking, sounds great, but I don't know if I'm called to adopt a kid, right? But there's other things you could do. I mean, I'd encourage you to get involved in the class or read more about it because there's ways that you can support families that are adopting or doing foster care, right? So you can come alongside them. You may not be called to do it yourself, but God's people are called to be about that kind of thing. James says that pure religion is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. So we want to care about people that can't care for themselves. We want to initiate for those who are weak. The next thing that I want us to see is that we should pay for the weak because God paid for us. So not pray. I mean, we should pray too, but not pray, but pay, okay? Pay. I, I, I grabbed a picture here um, to trigger your mind a little bit, and this may not work for everybody. This is cash. For those of you that are younger, this is how people used to pay for things, 
Um, we would call them dollar bills. I know a lot of you just carry plastic or you have a little glowing screen that you pay for things with now. Um, but it's spending your resources for the sake of someone else, right? That's the concept. Spending what you have to help someone else. Paying for the weak. And we see God doing that for us. The end of verse 8, we saw that uh, earlier Christ died for the ungodly, um, wouldn't normally die for a good person, uh, but even a good person you might dare to die, but verse 8, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so that last phrase, Christ died for us, that's the currency that Christ paid for your life. Christ gave his life for yours. And then verse 8 and 9, uh, starting in verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So that phrase, justified by his blood, again, it's a restating of the Christ died for you. It's another way of saying that. We've been justified by his blood. So different phrases that are repeated or different ways of saying the same thing, what we call the gospel, the good news, that God is for us. And then even though we're sinners and God is rightfully angry towards our sin, that he shows grace to us by, by paying for our sin, by turning aside the wrath of God, it says. We don't longer have to worry about the wrath. I'll just keep this in my hands here. It says it this way. Verse 9, Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So there's kind of a present and future salvation. There's the justified by his blood, and the concept there is you're made just. So justice has been served. Your sin was placed on Christ on the cross, so he paid the penalty for it. And he died, and he's raised from the dead, and his righteousness is given to you. So you are made just supernaturally through what we would call the substitutionary atonement, meaning he's a substitute for you. He took your place. And so that's justification. You've been justified by his blood. He paid for your life, for your justification. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So you don't have to worry about a future wrath or anger of God on judgment day, right? Every person in the world intrinsically knows that you're going to face judgment someday. And the question is, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? If you're judged purely by what you've done, that's a scary idea. But the gospel offers this concept that you would be judged by what Christ did. That He's, in a sense, your stand-in, your substitute. So if you already know that he's made you just by his blood, that he's died for your sins, how much more can you know you don't have to worry about his wrath. So he's paid for the wrath of God to be turned aside. Now, I just want to acknowledge wrath is a hard topic for a lot of us in our culture because we um, tend to prefer to think of God in terms of, of grace. And I would say through the gospel, grace is really what God leads with, in a sense, through Jesus. But it doesn't make sense apart from understanding God's righteous and rightful wrath at wickedness, right? We don't really want a God that just doesn't care about injustice. We don't really want a God that just thinks it's cute or no big deal when people are evil to each other. We, we want a universe where wrong is wrong. And the only way that that same universe we can live in and be loved by God is there's, there's got to be the grace of God through Jesus on the cross. Only Christianity makes sense of a God that is both wrathful towards sin and loving and gracious towards people. Only the cross makes that possible. Some religions really 
really hang out really hard on the righteousness and the justice and the anger of God. And some religions really focus and emphasize grace and love. I would say only in Christianity do you have an actual coherent system that makes sense of all of that. It brings all of that together. And so I would say an application is because Jesus paid for your sin. To some degree, we're called to pay for other people's sins. Now, we want to be careful, right? Because we're not Jesus dying on the cross. There's even a verse in Colossians that makes it sound like Paul thinks he's in some way suffering for people's sins. And the verse can be a little confusing. And then when you compare it to other verses that Paul uses in Philippians, you see that what he is talking about is bringing the payment of Jesus to other people. So Paul talks about in Colossians this idea of filling up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And again, just on the surface in English, I can sound like he's saying like Christ's afflictions are not enough. But then you compare it to some stuff in Philippians. In Philippians, he uses that same phrase of filling up what's lacking, and it's, it's talking about delivering something to somebody. And so the idea is Paul says that by bringing the gospel to other people, Paul is going to suffer. I mean, just by living in this world, we're going to suffer. But Paul says part of his purpose in life, part of our purpose in life is to share God's love with other people. So in the process, we're going to suffer. And so we're going to kind of look like Jesus in a small sense because Jesus suffered for us. And so as we bring this hope of this God uh, gospel message of Jesus dying for us, as we bring that to other people, we're going to suffer in the process. We're going to deliver this good news to others. And so in that sense, it's costing us, it's costing us to give grace to those who are weak and those who are struggling. And then I would say even more specifically, there's a very clear emotional way that it costs us to show grace to other people, and that's just simple relational forgiveness. And God may be calling you to recognize, you know what, God forgave me at the cost of his own son, so I must forgive other people. And I don't know what you've gone through. I know some of you have gone through horrible things I, that I couldn't imagine, right? So I don't want to push you on this. I just, I just want to say that if the God of the universe can forgive us, then we should forgive others. That doesn't mean we necessarily put ourselves at their mercy. If someone was abusive, we don't continue to allow ourselves to be abused. But there's, to some degree, this forgiveness that needs to take place. Where we, see, we say, because, because Jesus forgave me, I forgive you. Now, you may not have contact with that person anymore. Maybe you just need to like write a letter, talk to God, talk to someone you love, and say, hey, I'm, I'm doing this, right? There's, it's, it's helpful, I think, in some ways to make it concrete, write it down, share it with somebody else. But it's important that we take this step to live out what Jesus has shown us. Jesus, at great cost to himself, forgave us, right? And so the emotional cost that you might pay is withholding your, your hatred and your desire for revenge and your desire to extract payment from somebody, right? By, by forgiving someone, you're in a sense setting them free. You're canceling their debt that they owe to you. Is it right to be angry when someone's mistreated you? Yes. Is it right even to want justice? Yes. But we're called on to forgive people as, as God in Christ forgave us. That's a, that's a very concrete and difficult way for us to pay for the weak. I also would say a ministry that we have here that we'll announce again at the end of the service since it's a new year that I would encourage you to consider is Celebrate Recovery. And I think Celebrate Recovery helps you to work this through emotionally in your own life. Celebrate Recovery is designed to help you work through hurts and habits and hang-ups 
in your own life, kind of places where you're spiritually stuck. And one of the major places that we are working a lot on that as we grow as people is to show forgiveness to those that have hurt us, but also to ask forgiveness of those that we've hurt. And that's a big part of the process of, of spiritual transformation that goes on at Celebrate Recovery. So I'd encourage you to consider getting involved in that ministry in the new year. The last thing I want us to, to look at here is that we are called to revive the week. And I'm, I'm grabbing the word revive kind of by focusing on two key words here, and that is that we are saved by his life and that we rejoice in God. So those are kind of two key phrases of what it looks like for us to live the new life we have in Christ, rejoicing and being saved. And the word saved, we already saw a couple of verses ago, in the first century, most people would have heard that as heal. That's really the most common way that word would have been used. It, has, it would have a broader religious sense like we use it, but I think sometimes there are certain religious words that occur in the scriptures, and we've heard them so many times in religious contexts that they start to get disconnected from reality. So it's helpful to just think, hey, when this book was first written, the common everyday use of that was heal, right? And so it can have a immediate, we're healed from our sins, that kind of immediate forgiveness sense, but it also can have an ongoing, there's an ongoing healing, an ongoing work that God is doing in our life. It can have both senses, an immediate and an ongoing sense. And so let's read these verses, 10 and 11. He revives us. 10 and 11 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So again, healed by his life, healed by the resurrection power of Jesus. And then verse 11 says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we've got being healed by his resurrection power, being saved by his life, and we've got this rejoicing that goes on in our life. Even though we're in the midst of brokenness and and trial and trouble, and we're still sick and we're still broken and we're still surrounded by sin and disaster, there is a rejoicing that goes on, a supernatural rejoicing in our life because God is at work healing us, saving us by his life. What's really cool here is we see the two sides of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We saw this earlier, but I'm going to kind of pull on it more here in verse 10. It says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of a son, so that's phase one of our salvation, right? How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? This is kind of giving the two sides of what Jesus accomplished for us. And sometimes theologians like to call this double imputation. And what double imputation means, imputation, probably the easiest way to think of it is in a banking metaphor. And so the first side, the first single imputation is God took care of our debts, right? Like you were in the hole, you owed him because of your sin, and Jesus by dying on the cross paid your debt. But it's like now you're at zero, And so you could just stop there and think, well, God forgave me, but he doesn't really like me. You know, like you could kind of think of it that way. Like now he's just kind of neutral and he's kind of standing back and waiting to see what I'll do. But the gospel goes farther than than just forgiveness. The gospel says Jesus died on the cross for your sin, single imputation, double imputation, and he gives you his resurrection power, his life. So the idea is that Jesus didn't just die for your sins, but he also lives to give you his life. Because he rose from the dead, we are being saved by his life, it says. There's an ongoing power. Paul talks about in the Philippians of knowing the power of his resurrection in the midst of our suffering. So 
sadly, we wish it was some other way, but sadly, it's often in those really hard moments that we know this most clearly, when we know that his resurrection power is at work in our life. And so he's forgiven us our sins. That's one side of the banking imputation metaphor. And then he's given us his righteousness. And so to take the banking metaphor farther, it's like he's given us all the assets of the king of the universe. So so now this word is used often, inheritance, right? Now you have the inheritance of the son. Now you have all things in Christ. So not only has God turned aside his wrath and forgiven you and, and pushed away your sin, right, on the cross, but he's also given you the very life of Jesus. And what that translates into is he loves you. He delights in you. He sees you as, as beautiful and as perfect as his very own son. So that's the beauty of this, this big word, double imputation. There's, there's two sides of it. Taking your debt, but also giving you all the riches of Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So Paul's saying, hey, if, if we know he forgave our sin, he reconciled us while we're enemies, how much more do we know he's going to take care of us? Even though life is still hard, he's going to take care of us. We're going to be saved by his life. Verse 11, more than that, we rejoice. We rejoice. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so this is a kind of overflowing, bubbling over of our salvation. It's not just a neutrality. It's not just he took our sins and now let's see what happens. But he gives us life. There's a reviving here where we are productive, where we can now give life to others. We can help others and serve others and love others. We didn't know how to love before, but now we can love. And so I would say we should try to revive the weak because God did that for us. So we should be those kinds of people that add value and bring grace to the culture and to the people around us. What are ways that you can do that? I was thinking about in in our own life with with parenting, um, one of the goals of being a parent is not just to get your kids to obey, right? Or not just to make your kids happy or to not be bored or what, you know, whatever are the things that consume us as as parents, but your goal is that they would be productive people, right? That they would be producing, that they would be doing something in life. And so you want to give them life, revive them, make them uh, producers and contributors in the world. I grabbed a picture here of, of some uh, kids graduating, and I was thinking, you know, you don't want your kids to just obey the rules. You want your kids to, like, achieve something, right? And graduation may not be the best bar to shoot for, right? Maybe something, <laughs> maybe something beyond that. But that's, that's kind of a mark in our culture of like, okay, you've, you've arrived, right? We've graduated one kid, another about to graduate. We've got then the third one after that. And so this was kind of the picture I had in mind. But, but more than just graduation, it's not really education, right? The, the goal is that they would be disciples of Jesus. The goal is that my kids would be less and less dependent on me, and more and more dependent on Jesus. And so for some of you parents, you need to reckon with this, right? Because your goal is maybe to keep them eternally dependent on you. And I'd say, we need to see some counselors about that, right? Maybe come to celebrate recovery, talk about codependency and stuff. The, the goal as parents is not to keep them, like, hanging on to you, right? The goal is that they would, would fly and, and be independent and go serve others, and so I want you to see that that's, again, the process of what God did for us. God didn't just zero out our account, but he gave us all these funds to invest in other people, spiritually speaking. He, he didn't just um, save us 
and then say, but yeah, I don't really like you. No, he fills us with his resurrection life. He revives us, and he says, now go and give and serve and make a difference in this world. And so we want to contribute to other people's lives that way too. A book I love to talk about is When Helping Hurts. It's really good at talking about what it looks like to help hurting people in a way that doesn't create dependency. Because as people helpers, we can often fall into the trap of trying to help people in such a way that makes us continue to look good, right? And it can be self-focused. And we can forget that, you know what, I have a lot to learn from these people I'm helping too. So the book is really helpful in just challenging your assumptions and helping you think through strategies, but also theology of who are you as a person trying to help other people. So, so what does that look like in our life? We all have opportunities to help people in our life. I mean, first of all, probably half of you are parents. If you're a parent, it's your job to teach your kids, to train them to be disciples of Jesus, to train them to be spiritually independent, depending on God more than they're depending on you. Don't rely on a silver bullet of some school or some ministry or some media or whatever it might be and think that that that's just going to fix your kids. But God's actually deputized you and, and given you that role as parents to lead your kids to know and walk with Jesus. Now use the tools that are out there, right? Depend on community, pray, ask for other people's help. But, but know that that's ultimately your job is to fill them with life and, and send them out to make an impact on the world. So are you doing that in your own life? And then are you doing that in your sphere of influence? Are you impacting those that are younger or those that are struggling or those that need help in whatever circumstance that God has put you around? If you're single, you might think, well, I don't have kids, so I don't need to do that. But Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 and 8 that Singleness is a stewardship. It's an opportunity for service that you've been given to serve others. So what are you doing with those resources that you have? How, how are you spending yourself to serve others? I would say, if you haven't considered it just here, you know, make a plug again. It's a new year for children's ministry and nursery and youth here. We'd love to get more people involved. It's just an opportunity to help kids to see Jesus, whether it's with the little ones or the medium ones or the big ones or whatever it might be, working with kids and helping them to, to see and savor Jesus and God's word. So I encourage you to consider that. Ask you to pray, God, how do you want me in this new year in 2017 to serve those in my sphere of influence? So I started out at the beginning talking about this, this concept that God is saving us in our weakness, and he's not saving us as an adorable, cuddly little baby that needs adopting, but as an enemy. He's, an ado- he's adopting an enemy, right? Paul gives this funny little argument in verse 7, where he says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As I was pondering this, I was thinking about because of the military uh, community here, w- we have a lot of folks that are willing to die for people, at an unusually high rate, right? That's often a part of what it means to be in the military. And so first of all, I just want to say, I just want to honor that and thank you for that because Jesus says that greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So that's a beautiful thing. Also, though, I think it's interesting. I've, I've heard from my friends in the military that when they're training military guys from other cultures, that that, that is sometimes a missing element, the willingness to lay down our life. And I would say... I think it's because of the Christian worldview influence in our culture. I by no means think that our culture is just a Christian culture, right? I don't think that at all. But I do think that the values of Christianity have kind of worked their way through a lot of our institutions. 
And I think that because we value laying down our life for other people, that, that came from Jesus, right? Like it started with him, and that's, that's what we're seeing in this section of Scripture. We, we're seeing that because the God of the universe laid down his life for us, we should be those kinds of people that lay down our lives for others. We should be the kinds of people that give grace for the weak because that's who we are. We were weak. We were helpless. And God showed grace to us. Let me pray for us and respond and, and worship together. God, we thank you that you love us and you've shown grace to us in Jesus. And we thank you. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we didn't move towards you in love. You moved towards us. That we didn't clean ourselves up before we came to you. But you came after us and you cleaned us up and you made us your child and you adopted us into your family. We thank you for that. We pray that you would help our, our minds and our hearts to be revolutionized by that, to be changed, genuinely changed by that, so that we would show grace to the weak and kindness to those who need your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.